The scripture reading for this morning is taken from 1 Samuel, the first book of Samuel. And we'll be reading chapter 14, the verses 24 to 26. 14, the verses 24 to 26. We find ourselves in the middle of a battle scene between the men of Israel who had had very little in the way of military experience between them and very little in the way of weaponry. We learned earlier in the chapter that it was actually only Saul and Jonathan himself who had swords and the rest of them only had farming implements that they were taking to war, essentially. And you had them outnumbered and an enemy with better arms coming against them. And yet the Lord delivers them. We come to 1 Samuel 14, verse 24. After the Lord has delivered them and they have, by his help and by the fact that he has turned the hearts of the um, mercenaries, Hebrew mercenaries who are fighting with the Philistines, Against Israel, he had turned the hearts of these Hebrew mercenaries against their Philistine overlords as well, and he had turned creation against them in the earthquakes, and the Philistines have now fled in complete terror, and the Israelites had chased after them. We read, the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, cursed is the man who eats any food until evening. Before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, and therefore he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now, how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they had found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Now they had driven the Philistines back from Michmash to Aijalon, so the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves. And they slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep, Slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. 
Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die. Saul answered, God do so, and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. The focus today in particular will be verse 45, where the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. And you can see the people already setting up a contrast there. He has worked with God that day, as opposed to Saul. They do not give Saul the same credit. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if you were here with us last week, then you'll remember what's taken place in this passage leading up to today. We were introduced to Jonathan, the son of Saul, for the first time in the book of Samuel. At the same time, we were introduced to the character that Saul was truly turning out to be. What a difference there is between the two. You have Jonathan who sees the desperate situation that Israel is in. And knowing that it likely means death for him, whether he stands still where he is or whether he goes out himself to face the enemy, he heads out to face them in the strength of the Lord. Knowing that the Lord, and you can see the name Lord in all caps coming out here again and again as Jonathan deals with the Lord and trusts in the Lord. So the Lord with all caps is that the name of Yahweh, that relational name that God gives to his people, knowing that the Lord, Yahweh, is his covenant God, he prepares to be an instrument ready to work at a moment's notice in the hands of the Lord, if only the Lord will open the way. 
And in the verses leading up to our chapter today, we saw that he does. The Lord does open the way. Now, while Jonathan is one of the main instruments in God's delivering Israel at this point in time, at the end of the day, you have this confession by the author of 1 Samuel in 1 Samuel 14, verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth Avon. The Lord delivered his people. Jonathan had put his trust in the Lord, and the Lord had risen up to defend his covenant people. And then you have Saul. Saul, who is waiting for a sacrifice to be offered in preparation for the battle, and he sees his troops streaming away from him, all around him, in fear of the enemy. Insecure in the strength of the Lord, he decides to rely on himself instead, his own personal wisdom. He intrudes on the office of Samuel, and he chooses to offer the sacrifice himself. And for this, he was punished. He tried to justify himself. He tried to pretend that at the end of the day, it wasn't as bad a sin as it was made out to be, instead of truly asking for forgiveness. But he couldn't escape the consequences, no matter how much he downplayed his sin. Because sin is sin. And with unrepentant sin, God's wrath burns against it, no matter how much we try to minimize it. Samuel said that eventually he would lose the kingship. That one would rise up after him who was a man after the Lord's own heart. But for Saul, his line would end. His son Jonathan would not sit on the throne. It would take time for it to happen, but his rule was essentially over. And at the end of the day, despite all of his efforts, Saul was worse off than before. He thought to know better than God, and he ended up being worse off than before. Still desperately outnumbered, and the troops that he held together by a pitiful sacrifice that he made out of worldly wisdom instead of God's wisdom couldn't possibly face the enemy hordes that had come up against them. And yet even despite this, the failure of the leadership of God's people, God still had mercy. Not for the sake of Saul, who remained unrepentant, saying that what he did was wrong, yet he did what he had to because he felt compelled. Not for Saul's sake. But God had mercy on those who were affected by Saul's sin by granting deliverance, first of all, through an earthquake, through the courage of Jonathan, through turning Israel's very enemies against each other to destroy each other in confusion, through turning fellow Hebrews, Hebrew mercenaries against the Philistines and have them fight for the cause of the Lord their God. We see what's called the antithesis here, beloved. The antithesis, that cosmic war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that started in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, verse 15. The forces of the devil and the human forces that 
where he can get them, facing off against the forces of the people of God. And the people of God can seem so weak and so fragile, especially when you see this sin rising up in the midst of the people of God, rising up in their very leadership. And we see the devil thinking that he had the victory. And then the Lord God snatched away that victory just when he thought he had it within his reach. But in his rage, the devil seeks to do as much damage as he can. If he can't win the victory, he'll try to take down as much as he can. And so he targets the son of the king, the one through whom much of the victory was worked. If he can get God's instruments in this world, he feels he'll have won at least something against God. And so today we'll see Jonathan, the redemption of Yahweh's gift. And first of all, a disastrous mess, and then the one who ransoms. As we come into our passage, we see how Saul, perhaps trying to redeem himself, after his decision to rely on himself to lift the morale of his armies, how Saul decides to make a vow. He said, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. There is no saying how incredibly foolish this kind of a vow is. Your men are running and they're fighting all day and they're gonna get tired and hungry. And then you tell them that they can't eat anything. It's no wonder that they were feeling faint. You see this repeated again and again and again through our passage. The people were feeling faint. The people were faint. Jonathan recognizes this and sees after the fact, how bad of an idea this vow truly is. Jonathan, by the way, had no idea that his father made the oath. See what, he'd be less likely to break it if he had known about it, but we see in verse 27 that he had absolutely no idea. It seems this oath was made when Jonathan was away from the camp, being used by God to deliver the people through his raid. But I want you to notice more than just how foolish Saul's oath was from a practical perspective. See what Saul's doing here. Even in making a vow, in suggesting that he's doing something sacred, he somehow manages to turn this around and to make it about himself. This is the nature of sin. Even when seeming to show remorse, unless you truly repent, sin will cloud the thought processes of your mind. It turns around and it makes life and your decisions about yourself instead of the glory of God. Where uh, Jonathan made it about the glory of God and where the author of 1 Samuel shows to everyone that the Lord saves Israel from those who set themselves up against his people, Saul says, I will take vengeance on my enemies. 
and his self-centered oath has consequences. The people are so hungry that they feel they don't have time for ceremonially butchering the animals as is required by law for draining out the blood. They just want to eat. And so they sin against the Lord. Saul, seeing what's happening and angered by the consequences of his own rash vow, not accepting that it was because of his decision, chooses instead to blame the people. And now in some ways, he was right. After all, they were the ones who actually carried out the act. But as their ruler, and as the one who made an oath on their behalf, keeping them from food, he was the one who bore the responsibility. He was the one who was supposed to govern in a way that was righteous, as God commanded through Moses in Deuteronomy 17. It speaks of the king governing in a way that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. He was supposed to be an example, a representative before the people. But his shifting of responsibility condemned the people under his care and lifted himself above them. Rather than embracing his responsibility and leading his people before God in repentance, as you see later rulers like Nehemiah doing, those who begged the Lord to purge them of national guilt, he carries on. And his son ends up bearing the, bearing the heaviest weight of his hard-heartedness. See, Jonathan still had to bear the effects of his father's sin. And this sin, this, this is true in so many people's sins. You see, beloved, your sin doesn't just affect you. There is a reason that the Lord says it has an effect to the third and fourth generation in his law. Saul's elevation of himself affects Jonathan deeply and personally. In the first place, Jonathan has lost his position on the throne. That much the Lord has already promised through his prophet Samuel. And when Saul doubles down and tries to redeem himself by making a foolish vow and then calling for the death of the vow breaker instead of repenting and looking to God for redemption, Jonathan doubly feels the impact of his father's sin. It was a real mess. Saul was backed into a corner. The devil was rejoicing at the sin and the hard-heartedness of his father. Saul hadn't needed to make it a death sentence. A curse placed the person under the Lord's judgment. But Saul had gone a step further, saying that he would kill the oath-breaker, and he confirmed it with another oath in verse 44. He couldn't back down now. He had doubled down, and then he had doubled down again. And to back down, he would face shame in front of all of the people of God. Remember how quickly he had given up on the name 
and the reputation of the Lord when it came to sacrificing animals, when it came to waiting and depending on the Lord. But here he draws the line. Here it becomes apparent to all of the people of Israel that to Saul, the reputation of Saul matters more than the reputation of the Lord. And Saul would rather face, save face by the death of his son than surrender himself in humility before the righteous judgment of God. This father blamed his mistakes on everybody else around. And the ripple effects of his sin landed on everybody even Wallace explaining away what he himself had done. And this is what Samuel builds up to here in this passage. There the picture freezes. The devil celebrating. He has taken hold of the delivering son. Saul having confirmed the death of his son by an oath. The army around, shocked, horrified, exhausted, covered in blood, sweat, and grime. Samuel gone, having called down judgment on their king. Jonathan, the only real hero in this narrative, if anyone could be called a hero for being an instrument in the Lord's hands, he stands before his father. Jonathan, the only one who demonstrated anything close to righteousness and dependence on the Lord, stands sentenced to death. Where did the joy of driving back the invading enemy go? Where did the celebration of the Lord's deliverance of his people go? What a victory this seems to be for the forces of darkness. Victory that's right in the grasp of Satan. He has only to close his hands around it and it seems that this nation will be his. The light will be snuffed out. There are times when we sit in this darkness, beloved. Times when it seems that our people see darkness on every side. Times when the devil seems to have his way even among the people of God. Times when we are filled with grief and sorrow over the consequences of sin. And oh, the darkness seems deep in those times. Oh, the darkness seems deep. But in the middle of this deep darkness, there is light. In the middle of this mess, there is redemption. And this brings us to our second point. On hearing the demand of Saul, the moment is shattered. And the people respond with shouts of outrage. They can't wrap their minds around the idea that the very person that the Lord used to deliver the nation of Israel, this man who has become Yahweh's gift to them, would now have his life demanded of him by that very same Lord. 
and then their eyes are opened. They are brought to see with vivid clarity where the problem really lies, and it is not with Jonathan. And in the midst of this disaster, in the moment when the devil's victory seems complete, the Lord snatches it out of the devil's hand. Notice the beautiful picture that takes place here in verse 45. The people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. And here it comes. So, the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. In the midst of the grime of war, the sins of the people, the failure of Saul, the condemnation given through Samuel, and this overwhelming darkness that begins to cover the people, the Lord gives us a beautiful picture of redemption. By the grace of God, here in 1 Samuel 14, verse 45, the whole army lets everything grind to a halt, and then they rescue Jonathan. And it's in that word, to rescue, that the grace of God shines through. Because the Hebrew word for rescued literally means ransomed. It's a sacrificial ransoming that's happening here. In the book of Exodus, the firstborn son was ransomed or redeemed by the sacrificing of a lamb in Exodus chapter 13. Firstborn animals were sacrificed as a reminder to Israel how God had brought them out of Egypt. It was sacrificed as a reminder to them that they were not any better, they were not any holier than the nation that they had been brought out of, that they themselves deserved that end. And in the same way, it's a reminder to all of us that we ourselves are not any holier than this world that we are brought out of. But it was for the sake of the name, the reputation, the covenant relationship that Israel had with their Lord that they were led out. And so each father was to tell his child according to the rule of Exodus 13, Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord we were brought out of Egypt. It's this exact same Hebrew word for ransom, for redemption, that's translated as rescue in our passage today. Covered in the grime and sweat of battle and exhausted by the day with death all around them. But deliverance brought for them through the son of the king. The people would stop everything that they do and offer a sacrifice. Jonathan, the firstborn son who was redeemed as he left the womb, is now once again redeemed for the people of God. Jonathan, whose name means gift of Yahweh, 
and who was used to give deliverance and salvation to the people of God from the hands of their enemies is now once again bought with blood. Jonathan, the twice-ransomed son. But his redemption was only possible because of the one to whom the sacrifice pointed. You see, as we read in Psalm 49, man cannot redeem his brother. Of themselves, no matter what these brothers in arms, these soldiers would do, they would not be able to redeem Jonathan. In verses 7 to 8 of Psalm 49, we read, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. But it's God himself who provides a way. Where it seems impossible with us, it's God himself who provides a way that a ransom like this can be accepted before him. The psalmist goes on, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. God himself steps in to make that sacrifice that's necessary. Jonathan had been used to save his people from earthly enemies, but God used this son of the king as a tool an instrument in his hands to deliver his people. When it came to the powers of darkness and the actions of the devil, however, this deliverer could not deliver himself. And so the twice-ransomed son points us ahead to the ransoming son. The king, in an attempt to set himself right, to redeem himself and rescue his own self-image, wanted to sacrifice his son. And the devil almost had the victory. Just like centuries later, on Golgotha, the devil reached out and he almost had, he felt he almost had that victory in his hand. And darkness settled over the land. But God, however, God rescued the son of the king by the hand of the people. And he did this by the sign that would point to the more perfect sacrifice that was coming. To his victory that broke through, even in the midst of what seemed to be a sure victory for the devil. So this is the picture that we're given today. In the middle of the brokenness of this world, facing some victory, yet also facing the loss of friends, family, fellow warriors by their side, and facing an aching hunger from a day of desperate fighting without any food, we find this beautiful redemption. The sun, the people can see the sun was ransomed from the wickedness of the Father by the people, using the very same blood that pointed the people ransomed from their pointed to the people ransomed from their own wickedness to the Father by the Son. Because where there was a Father who failed, our Father in heaven stepped in. And His Son willingly offered Himself up instead. 
His Son willingly paid the price to redeem His people. The imperfect ransomed son Jonathan was bought by the sacrifice that pointed to Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, we ourselves have become Yahweh's gift. In John 17 verse 9 we read Christ our Lord himself describing us, his people, as the ones who were given by the Father to him. All who look to him in faith for forgiveness, repenting wholeheartedly and crying to him for salvation. Whoever we are, we are the gift that God gives to his son. Whoever we are, whatever we've done. Beloved, where our earthly fathers fail. Let us not look to God and project our earthly fathers onto him. But instead, let's remember the perfect father who redeems and who saves completely those who put their trust in him. Where we fail, let us remember his deliverance through his son. And let's yearn for the day when we will more fully understand his protection and his love. When we fully understand perfect fatherhood and the trust, faithfulness, and love in response that this inspires in a people who have been washed, redeemed, purified, and glorified. Amen.